Welcome to At the Bedside, an ATS Breathe Easy podcast which focuses on commonly encountered clinical problems in the intensive care unit. My name is Matt Stutz and I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician at Cook County Health in Chicago, Illinois. I'm excited to have you here. Let's get started. An honor to have Dr. Bhakti Patel coming in from University of Chicago. Um, Dr. Patel is a world expert in non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, and we're just thrilled to have her with us. She's uh, an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Chicago in the section of pulmonary and critical care medicine. Dr. Patel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, could you just tell us a little bit of your story, how you became interested in this topic and, and some of the work that you've done? Yeah, so I'm a clinical trialist who likes to specialize in complex multidisciplinary interventions. So that's just sort of a lot of words to explain that I like interventions that require teams of people. And so one of the problems that I was noticing in the ICU is that when we intubate patients, we tend to add all these um, supportive care practices that can make their long-term outcomes worse, like deep sedation, immobility, et cetera. So I was looking for innovative ways for people who are vulnerable for these uh, poor outcomes to maybe avoid getting on a ventilator. And so um, we did a, some studies on non-invasive ventilation in patients with ARDS and were able to show at least some preliminary data that we could avoid um, intubating these patients if we deliver non-invasive ventilation with a helmet. So I kind of started in my interest in non-invasive ventilation because I saw it as a way to spare patients complications um, and potentially keep them awake and animated in the ICU. Well, uh, we're glad to hear it, and we're glad to have you at the bedside. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll go through a case, and we'll, we'll see your approach and one of your areas of expertise and hopefully learn a thing or two. But we'll dive right into the case. So we have a 75-year-old lady. She has a past medical history of CHF, uh, LV ejection fraction of 35%. She also has pretty severe COPD. She's on 2 liters HOMO2. Um, and she's obese. So she came into your emergency department with respiratory distress. Um, and from what you hear, uh, she's been having some upper respiratory symptoms for the last week. She started to have worsening lower extremity edema over the last two to three days. Her vital signs on arrival to the emergency department are notable for a respiratory rate of 32. And she was saturating in the mid 80s on her home two liters. Uh, blood pressure is 115 over 74. Her heart rate is 98, and she is uh, afebrile. Uh, the emergency department uh, tells you that she's in moderate distress. Uh, her cardiac exam is unremarkable to them. Her lungs have crackles with expiratory wheezing and a prolonged expiratory phase. Um, and then her CBC is uh, within normal limits, but her white count is on the higher side, and she has a left-shifted differential. Uh, her basic metabolic panel uh, is notable for a, a bicarb of 39 um, and a creatinine of 0.5, uh, which is below her baseline. And so her EKG is unchanged from prior, and her chest X-ray shows that she has some hyperinflation bilaterally, small bilateral pleural effusion. Just workup. They've started her on steroids uh, and given her a dose of Lasix, and then started her on. Um, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation uh, with a face mask at 10 over 5. Um, so what are your initial thoughts about the patient and how the management's going? It's an enticing history of someone who's coming in with respiratory distress. 
and has some features that suggest maybe they have a COPD exacerbation because they're wheezing um, and they have a prior history of COPD, but they also seem to have um, some volume overload from their history of heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. So it seems like the perfect candidate to try initially some non-invasive ventilation um, because there's data to suggest that early application of this strategy actually prevents intubations and actually improves survival. So she's coming in with all the trappings of, I need some NIV for my respiratory failure. And COPD specifically, you know, why might positive pressure ventilation help? Yeah, so when we think about um, patients with obstructive lung disease, their problem is that they haven't been able to fully exhale, so they have trouble getting the next breath in. So I think sort of an exercise to feel sort of the mechanical disadvantage that patients um, with COPD might have is, is sort of taking a breath in and then exhaling that out halfway and then take another breath in and exhale that halfway and then another breath in and exhale that halfway and then try to breathe there. And you can notice that your chest is hyperinflated, your diaphragm is flattened because you have that incomplete exhalation of previous breaths. And so in order to expand your chest even further beyond that hyperinflated state, um, contract that diaphragm that's already flat to create a negative intrathoracic pressure so that atmosphere pressure can come in and take your breath in, that can be quite a challenge. So when you put someone on positive pressure, you're meeting them where they are. They have a lot of intrinsic PEEP they're unable to create a negative intrathoracic pressure because of that mechanical disadvantage to get that breath in. And so when you're adding a mask and applying positive pressure, you're meeting them to match close to their intrinsic PEEP so that they don't have to expand their chest beyond where it can go or contract their diaphragm beyond where it can go in order to get that next breath in. It makes a lot of sense why uh, patients with COPD would, would benefit from this early on. And why CHF? What, what's happening there on the physiologic level? Yeah, so um, it's interesting because there can actually be physiologic effects of positive pressure in patients with acute exacerbations of heart failure. So first you have this dilated heart. There's a lot of extra circulating volume. You actually want to help uh, reduce some of the preload so that the, um, the heart function improves. And in addition, during uh, systole, as patients are on positive pressure, you're actually decreasing the cardiac transmural pressure, so you're reducing afterload as well. So beyond just um, you know the buying time for that Lasix to set in, or maybe afterload reduce if the patient is hypertensive, you're actually improving some of the physiologic effects of the heart by reducing preload and reducing afterload by applying um, positive pressure ventilation. Well, that makes a lot of sense, too. Uh, well, let's get into the nitty-gritty of things. Um, what do you think about the settings? And let's say that you're going down to see the patient. You know, how would, how would you approach their initiation on uh, non-invasive positive pressure? Yeah, and in some ways, you know, non-invasive uh, ventilation has become so common practice that it becomes almost like a rite of passage to the ventilator. So, um, and so when, whenever someone is put on non-invasive ventilation, I, I ask myself first, are they a candidate? So are they awake and alert? If they aren't awake, um, or maybe they're having depressed mental status, do they have airway protective reflexes, like a cough and a gag? Do they have hemoptysis or a lot of secretions that they're bringing up, which you don't want to put into a mask and have them aspirate? Do they have facial trauma that potentially could introduce air into the brain 
or a recent sort of esophageal anastomosis. These are unusual scenarios, but ones that we don't think of as contraindications to initiate um, NIV. Are they sort of peri-arrest and instead you should resuscitate them and put them on a ventilator? Um, if those things are not present, then, then I go ahead and make sure that I don't miss the indications for non-invasive ventilation that have been shown to improve mortality and improve activation rates. So those would be specifically patients with acute exacerbations of COPD and patients with acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema. I also like to be in the room when it gets initiated because I can make those decisions sort of looking at the patient at the bedside. So, you know, um, you know, the last thing someone who is in respiratory distress wants is to have a muzzle put on their face and, you know, air shot into their mouth. And so it's important to kind of come into the room, kind of engage the patient and say, you know, I know you're having trouble breathing. Here's this mask that could help you get the air that you need. And that engages their mind and also lets me know, are they a candidate from a mental status standpoint? I also then have them hold the mask in their hand and hold it to their mouth because they will naturally place the mask in a way that's comfortable to them. So it's diagnostic and therapeutic in some ways, diagnostic that their mental status is okay, um, and then therapeutic in the ways that makes it comfortable for the fit. Um, and then because they're holding the mask, now I can deal with the tangle of, of straps you know, to make sure that it has the appropriate fit. Um, and I like to start the settings sometimes a little low if patients seem a little anxious, uh, maybe eight of inspiratory pressure and four of expiratory pressure, and then ramp up to everyone's favorite flavor of NIV, you know, 10 over five. And then I look at them. I like to capture in my mind the work of breathing that they had before the mask was applied and look at that work of breathing after the mask has been applied to see if there's been some benefit in terms of their, um, their effort. Great. I really like the idea of having the patient place their mask themselves, both for the fit and so they're not feeling claustrophobic, as, as you said, a helpful pro tip. So I appreciate that. Great. Well, let's, let's lay eyes on the patient. So, you know, they're still down in the emergency department. So unfortunately, we weren't in the room for the, for the start, but we can, we can see how she's doing now. So we, we enter the room and her vital signs are about the same, respiratory rates in the mid-30s, saturations in the low 90s. Uh, BiPAP is set at 10 over 5, 50% FiO2 as advertised. You know, she's sitting upright in bed. She's using accessory muscles. When we talk to her, she's able to answer some of our questions uh, in short sentence. And she just, she just feels like she's not getting enough air. So Dr. Patel, what would be your system to see how this non-invasive is inter interfacing with our patient? Yeah. So I like to actually look at the machine then, because clearly like that comfort comfortable pattern of breathing is, is not what she's displaying right now. So I look at the machine and I look at what their tidal volume is. So if the tidal volume sort of, you know, 250 or less, patients, you know, recruiting minute ventilation by excessive respiratory rate um, because they're taking really small breaths. And instead, what you want them to do is have a pattern of breathing that looks comfortable with deep breaths that don't happen that frequently. Um, so one approach would be if the patient has really small tidal volumes, is to increase the inspiratory pressure from 10 to 12 or 15, whatever would kind of increase their tidal volume by, you know, 25 or 50%, depending on how low it was to start. And then see if with that augmenting of that tidal volume, are they now not relying on an excessive respiratory rate, but it now are able to kind of slow down and do that slow, deep breathing. 
If the patient seems to have an adequate tidal volume, but sort of um, seems to have a lot of effort, I actually like to look at the pressure waveform on the non-invasive machine, specifically to see, is the patient, you know, asking for a breath and not getting it? Um, and so what that looks like kind of at the bedside is sort of like the patient is using the accessory muscles, opening their mouth, using their belly to really ask for that breath, but then that inspiratory pressure is not kicking in. It's, it's almost like they're having a dirty cry or like um, trying to eat their mask, um, asking for that breath. And that sort of tells me that they have trouble triggering. Now, on the non-invasive ventilation machine, there's not necessarily like a trigger button because that seems like the, the thing people always think, oh, I'll just increase the trigger sensitivity. But what they're showing you is that that their intrinsic peak is higher than the peak that you set on the machine. Because if we think back to the patient who's trying to spontaneously breathe that has an intrinsic peak that's elevated because they have incompletely exhaled all the breaths before they met you, they have a pressure in their chest that's much higher than the negative pressure that they need to generate to get their breath in. And you applied a mask trying to approximate that intrinsic peak but that, that PEEP that you set is still lower than their intrinsic PEEP. So they still can't contract their diaphragm, expand their chest to drop the pressure in the circuit just a little below that PEEP of five that you set. And instead, counterintuitively, you actually have to increase the PEEP so that it gets closer to where they're sitting at at the end of the breath so that they don't have to contract their, their uh, diaphragm anymore, expand their chest and drop their pressure even lower than they're able to do. So in that scenario, if there's ineffective triggering on a PEEP of five, I tend to increase the PEEP to seven or eight and see if every time the patient asks for a breath, are they now getting one? And then make sure that the difference between the IPAP and the EPAP stays constant so that I don't lose you know, ground on tidal volume. So if five point difference between IPAP and EPAP led to an acceptable tidal volume, then I'll, if I have to increase by three points for the PEEP, then I'll increase the IPAP by the same amount. So the IPAP EPAP difference is still five, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. So, you know, when we first walked into the, the room, the patient was getting lower tidal volumes at a quick respiratory rate in, in the 30s around 250 cc's or so. And so first move that was you know made is to take up the, the IPAP, move that up to around 12 to 15 and then you know her tidal volumes improved uh, but then when we were looking a bit closer she was having those ineffective triggers where she was really kind of using accessory muscles using her belly and just wasn't always getting a breath when she was uh, making that effort and so you would simply raise the epap at that time to try to decrease ineffective triggering and then allow her to achieve those larger tidal volumes and get a breath every time that she um, asks for it. So with those interventions, you really you know, made the patient seem a lot better. She's not working hard to breathe. Her tidal volumes move into the, the 450s, 500s, and then her respiratory effort drastically improves and her respiratory rate has started to drop down into the mid to low 20s. So she, she's really looking a lot better. You know, in addition, she's kind of putting some urine out as well, which makes you feel uh, quite relieved. At this point, Dr. Patel, would you, you know, say, you know, hey, this patient's on the mend. Maybe we can, maybe we can send her to the floor. That'd be something you'd be enticed to do? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it seems a little too early to think that she can come off non-invasive ventilation and go to, to the floor because you still have to improve the volume status, which is probably contributing 
to her respiratory distress also can make her COPD worse because, you know, she can have airway edema and and worsening obstruction that way. And so I I think that if I'm trying to figure or triage, you know, which patients do I want close to the mothership in the ICU versus those who can be okay if they're a little far away, I would pick those who don't have a secure airway. So those that are on non-invasive ventilation, because they're going to need sort of active titration, active looking. Um, they they all need titration of their settings. They'll need assessment of whether they um, can come off. And often um, you need that continuous sort of surveillance to make sure that they're not failing that approach because delaying the inevitable intubation also um, could lead to poor outcomes too. Absolutely. Totally agree. I, I actually have a similar uh, tendency in my practice. The, the patients who don't have a secure airway but are, are on another type of ventilator are often higher risk to uh, decompensate than those who have a protected airway. And so great. So let's flash uh, forward a couple days. So the patient's doing really quite well. She's had several days treatment for a COPD exacerbation. It looked like virus and now is improving. And she's had quite a bit of urine output each day. How do you de-escalate the BiPAP? Do you just simply take it off? Do you kind of wean the settings down? Uh, What's your practice? Yeah, I think my practice is sort of like ripping it off like a band-aid. It's just like how we think about spontaneous breathing trials. You know, um, you want your hypothesis is, are you able to safely return back to negative pressure breathing or not? And if we start titrating things down, it's sort of hard to, it sort of extends that weaning period um, for a bit when the patient might just already be better. And that's the beauty of non-invasive ventilation is that you can always put it back on and, and, you know, return the patient back to some respiratory support. But I tend to just take it off. If patients have end-stage COPD and are needing settings, you know, uh, 15 over 5 or more or something like that. They might have had, you know, significant acute on chronic respiratory failure for some time before they kind of land in the ICU. So for them, it may not be as quick of a turnaround. So maybe they need a day or a day and a half of non-invasive ventilation where I'm not really rushing to get them off because they have muscle wasting from their COPD and they actually need that respiratory unloading. But for others who don't have chronic respiratory failure, I, I, you know, they can have a quick turnaround with their interventions. And for those, I tend to, you know, just take them off the mask. Awesome. That makes certainly makes things uh, a little more practical as well. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Patel. This was this was really educational. And just to highlight some uh, key takeaways that I got were, first, don't harm your patient. Look for contraindications to uh, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, like a depressed mental status or not protecting the airway. Patients who are really just peri-arrest and need to be intubated, uh, don't delay. And then facial fractures uh, can, are a contraindication because you may accidentally put air into the brain. A pro tip that I liked was have the patient put the mask on themselves when starting it and communicate with the patient throughout that time because it can be um, anxiety provoking uh, for everyone, probably most the patient. And then when choosing your initial settings, it's a dynamic process. You'll want to adjust your IPAP until you get the appropriate tidal volume you'd like, and then the EPAP until you have effective breath delivery each time the patient asks for a breath. Continue titration throughout the course of illness, and then once you have reversed the underlying etiology of the respiratory failure, you can try to rip the BiPAP off like a Band-Aid unless you're dealing with something a little more chronic. 
Dr. Patel, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy the show. Thanks. Thanks, Matt, for having me. Great. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. And just a reminder that the views presented today do not necessarily reflect the views of our institutions nor the American Thoracic Society and the case was presented for learning purposes only. So thank you so much and we hope to see everybody next time.